Well, um, we are today for session four of uh, our church history uh, class, the history of heresy, history of the church from 50 to 500 A.D. And today we're going to talk about the heresy of Marcionism. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing on our time. Father, we come to you this, this morning grateful, Lord, for your grace in our lives, grateful for the perfection of our Savior, uh, the great work that he has accomplished to make us your children, to make us righteous forever, uh, the beauty of the gospel message that we now have received and been entrusted with, and we pray you'd help us be good stewards of that, that we would guard the truth in our hearts, in our lives, in our, coming out of our mouths, in our churches, that we would um, protect the truth which has once for all been delivered to the saints. Help us as we look back in history to learn what you'd have us to learn, uh, to not be um, a proud, Lord, not to have it make us uh, arrogant, but that we would be more humble and dependent upon you, more grateful for your grace, which has made our eyes to see and our ears to hear. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today, uh, the, the heresy of Marcionism... Um, Marcionism was really the first, I mean, it, it's the first major heresy in that it, like Gnosticism that we talked about last time, uh, and is more of a, um, an underlying tendency that affected a lot of churches uh, and f- affected the early church and had to be written against and was a heresy that was very dangerous. But Marcionism actually became people identified with Mars. People wouldn't say, I'm a Gnostic Christian. They just would be exhibiting that. Marcionism actually was a movement. And so it's really the first great heretical movement in the early church. Um, and so we want to look at it today. It, it's instructive. We'll see that there's some overlap with... Um, with Gnosticism, uh, in that there's some Gnostic elements in Marcionism, but but it's definitely its own thing, and we'll see that as we go work through it. So the heresy of Marcionism, this is something that came into full flower in the second century A.D. So uh, around 140 A.D., it really came on strong and continued to affect the church all the way through the end of the second century. And it, its effect was wide. I mean, it was uh, it was a, a massive movement within the church that was very deadly to the gospel. And but again, God used this movement to purify the church, to drive the faithful back into the scriptures, and to deepen their understanding of the faith and the truth. So. Uh, what Satan means for evil, God means for good. That's a, certainly the case with Marcionism as well. Now, the man behind Marcionism, first outline point. He was born in Sinope, which is an area of Asia Minor, an area of Asia Minor, Minor known as Pontus. He was actually from one of the regions Peter's writing to in his letter. Remember, he's writing to Pontus, Galatia, Asia, Cappadocia, Bithynia. Those are all areas in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And this guy was from this town, Sinope, which is still a town uh, in northern Turkey on the Black Sea. It's a coastal town. 
he actually made his money. He made he was a very wealthy man, and he made his money in shipbuilding. He was the son of a bishop, and uh, it was a you know a Christian, a professing Christian. Although his his he's not truly a believer because he he denies the fundamentals of the gospel, but he was a professing Christian, uh, raised in a Christian home. Um, like I said, his dad. Some of these details, as you read different people, we piece things together from a lot of different sources. We don't have any direct writings of Marcion. We have people referring back to what he wrote. And he's quoted a lot by so many different people, and they tell us different historical facts about him too. Uh, anyway, so, but, but from what we know, he was born around 90 A.D., so he was born before uh, the death of John, the apostle, uh, you know, still in the apostolic age when he's born. Uh, he's born in this town in northern uh, Turkey, which has been impacted with the gospel significantly. I mean, we, Peter wrote his letter 63 A.D. He's born in 90 A.D., and he's in Pontus. So uh, the churches there, you know, have... New Testament witness and, and, and gospel witness. Uh, so it was, uh, he's known, known as Pontius. He was born there in 90 AD. That's what that N blank was about 90 AD. Um, doesn't seem as clear when I look at it now. He was excommunicated by his father, the bishop, because of apparently sexual immorality. He was excommunicated from the church around 140 AD at least before 140 A.D., before he's 50, he's excommunicated and apparently is sexual impropriety. So he must have been unrepentant, and he's excommunicated. Well, he's already become a skillful teacher. He leaves and goes to Rome in about 140 A.D., and he begins, he unites with the church there in Rome, um, he doesn't. Re- they don't know he's been excommunicated from Pontus, uh, and so he starts having a ministry there, teaching ministry. He's a very effective teacher. One of the reasons Marcion was so successful was, was because he had some real strengths, and so his heresy uh, takes root because he's a he is a a naturally gifted man. Well. Begins teaching, and within three or four years, the church at Rome realizes this guy is off, and so they excommunicate him in 144 A.D. He's excommunicated by the bishop of Rome because of heresy, because they recognize his doctrine to be heretical. Remember, heresy is uh, doctrine and religious teaching that differs from orthodoxy and strikes at the heart of the Christian faith. So he's teaching things that strike at the heart of the Christian faith, that hinder salvation, and so he's excommunicated. But he continues to teach. He, he leaves Rome, goes back into Asia Minor, to, continues to teach and gains more and more followers. Uh, in fact, like I said, he's a very gifted teacher. So he, he earns the title, Number this is D, 1D, he earns the title, the first great heretic. In church history, he's the first great heretic. Like I said, there are other heretics, but he was at a level of influence uh, and success, really. For, I mean, 
from his vantage point, it was, it was harm to the church, but success from his vantage point that made him the first great heretic in church history. His strengths, he was a great organizer. Uh, he was also an effective communicator. And so he knew how to get the message out. He knew how to uh, package things, and he was a, a, a skillful marketer. His success, um, we know he is so successful in spreading his message because he is written against by, you know, more than a dozen significant figures in church history. Everybody is writing against Marcion. You know, from Polycarp to Justin Martyr to Irenaeus uh, to... Um, Ignatius of Lyon, on and on and on. And you don't see that in church history, other heresies. I mean, Arianism is going to come to that level too, but most of your heresies don't get that kind of, uh, we don't have that many documents of people writing, the faithful writing against it. You see? So if that many people are writing against it, it means this is a problem across the Roman world. It's spread like wildfire, Okay. Because the guys I mentioned are in different places around the Mediterranean in the Roman world. So he was very successful. His work, the antitheses. Now, I have a copy of it, but we have people referring to it constantly. The antitheses. And an antithesis is something, it's against, anti-against, thesis, statement, or position. And so antitheses is... A, is, is, is plural form of antithesis, that is, a statement against. And so he basically wrote this book as a a polemic against what he saw as error in the church. Now, see, he's writing against truth, but he thinks he's right, and he's writing against, really, the 12 apostles, other than the apostle Paul, we'll see in a minute. He believes that the Christian church has been perverted by a, uh, a Judaizing influence that is very damaging. So we'll explain this a little bit as we go on. So um, that's number, we've got to number two now. The, um, the error of Marcionism. Just to get to the error, we're going to we're going to talk about the doctrine in the next one in a little more detail. But I want to just look at the big picture of his error, the error of Marcionism, uh, the big idea of Marcion. If you want to get his his essential doctrine, okay, is the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of love, completely to the exclusion of any law. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of love, completely, you know, we need to remove any semblance of law from our understanding of the gospel. So he stumbled over an area that many people throughout history have stumbled over, the relation of law and gospel in the Christian faith. And he massively stumbles by rejecting everything that has to do with the law of God. Okay, so you can see his message is God is love, and anything that sounds different than that, he rejects. 
Now, we know that God is love, but that he's also a God of holiness and wrath and justice. We see all of that in the scriptures, right? And you can't understand his love if you don't understand these other things. But Marcion, his, his, he was so concerned about this one area that he didn't listen to the scriptures well. So um, anyway, that's the, the big idea behind Marcionism. Two fatal flaws of Marcion. He, this is something, these are two flaws of, of really every heretic. First flaw, oversimplification. Oversimplification. He oversimplified the message of God. He he focused on that one aspect that is there, the love of God. And the second thing, oversimplification, and I don't have a good word for this, but essentially the second flaw is having oversimplified, he ignored anything contrary to his, his simplified doctrine just ruled it out of order. So, and that's essentially what heretics do. They see some they see something that's in the scripture, they oversimplify it, and then they ignore everything that contradicts it. So that their their doctrine is not really uh faithful to the scriptures. It's not really looking at everything God has to say in his word. Okay? So, um the the two fatal flaws oversimplification and ignoring uh, scriptural, ignoring scripture, really, the, the, whole, the full counsel of God. You know, Paul talks about when he's preaching to the, uh, when, when he's sharing with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, remember when he's talking to them, he says, you know, for three years I didn't, uh, I didn't cease to, to, to minister from house to house, and I, I, I proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. Everything God has to say, that's what we need. The whole picture. So Marcion, uh, his flaw was he oversimplified and he ignored. Now, it, it was complicated for him in one sense, and we should be make sure acknowledge this that when Marcion is ministering, the canon, the New Testament canon, has not yet been fully arrived at. The New Testament canons, the the, the canon is the rule, C A N O N. Rule, that's what the word, actually the Greek word means, a ruler, a measuring stick. And the canon is those books which are legitimate scripture. And so it took some time for the New Testament to become agreed upon because, remember, think about the the nature of how it was happening in the first century. Um, The Corinthians receive a letter from Paul. Then they receive a second letter from Paul a few years later. And then they make copies of it and share it with like-minded churches around. And over time, copies of it spread out throughout. But we don't have the printing press. We don't have the Internet, certainly, right? So it takes time for these letters to move around. And then the questions people are asking, okay, now who is this by? And you have other letters, like the Bishop of of Rome, Clement, writes a letter, and and a lot of people will read it. And the Shepherd of Hermas, another letter that was early, written in the first century, that uh, was an encouraging letter from Christian to Christian or, you know, written to churches, 
but they, it was not written by the apostles, one of the 12, or one of the, those associated with them closely, so, which is what the test of Scripture is. It had to be written by uh, an apostle or a close associate of an apostle, uh, and the apostles were those who saw the risen Christ. Mike? Yeah, okay. So you're asking about the Berean church. Oh, what you're saying was the Berean church is response to when Paul preached what we should, what people should be doing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you, that's a really important point to uh, the whole big argument here, actually, uh, is the what Marcion did was reject the Old Testament. We're going to see as he, in his canon, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a clearly defined New Testament canon for a while because it took some time. But you can see it already forming in letters as, you, as, as we read it. And this is, there's some great books on that. Uh, I was just asked about a book on uh, canonicity, uh, and I... I, I I was trying to think of the best ones I have. I, I need to look in my library because I can't remember a couple of titles. But I do remember James White's book, even on the King James controversy. He does a great job of talking about canonicity uh, in that book. So, um, but anyway, so it took some time for that to happen. Well, Marcion is ministering before it's fully fleshed out. And actually, Marcionism and his... He's going to suggest a canon, and his canon is so wrong that it sets the church to really digging into this question with greater urgency. Like, he's going to say, Marcy, in fact, let me see. We're, okay, we're, the next point, that uh, we're on the air of Marcionism. Okay, let's move on to number, uh, well, the God of, oh, let me, I'm sorry, I'll stay in my outline. I'll come back to that in a minute. We'll get there eventually. Uh Turn the page over, 1A, or 3A, is the God of the... This is, this is his error. This is essentially his doctrine. The God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. That's it distilled down. He believes the God of the Old Testament is not the same God as the God of the New Testament. Jay? Oh, number three was the error of Marcionism, Right? That's what I said, the error. Huh? Two was the, uh, what was two? Oh, I'm sorry. Number three is the doctrine of Marcionism. That's why they're almost the same point, but they're slightly different. Two was the error of Marcionism. Thank you, guys. Three is the doctrine of Marcionism. What does he, what's he teach? My apologies. I don't have my form filled out again. It's in my head. That's where it's dangerous. Um so the doctrine of Marcionism, the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. That's what he teaches. Yeah, that's his, that's his doctrine, his, his heretical doctrine. He teaches something very different. I mean, so this is his essential thing. Now, now remember, he's, the big idea is God is love, God is love, God is love. He reads the Old Testament in a surface way, and he doesn't see the God of love in the Old Testament. Now, we know if you read the Bible correctly, you see the God of love in the Old Testament 
as well as the New Testament. But if you, you know, you take up, lift out passages and you look at things and wow, look at Sodom and Gomorrah, look at the, the conquest of, of Canaan. You know, you see things that are troubling and difficult and you have to wrestle with. But you also, when you read the Bible, you see God talking about how he, he loved his people. You know, Deuteronomy 10, I didn't choose you because you were more numerous, but I loved you and I set my affection upon you and I brought you to myself. And I, you're, I want you to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the Old Testament, right? He, 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 he reads the Old Testament in a way, and I think he basically had an anti-Semitic tendency. I think he was just... Had a, I mean, different folks have talked about this, and it seems to make sense that he was just had a natural uh, antipathy towards the Jewish people. Yep. I also think that Caesar loved uh, some of the harsh, what we call harsh judgments, oh, yeah. such as the swallowing of the twenty-five thousand herdsmen. You hear that he loves righteousness mm-hmm. and hates wickedness, so he judges that. Exactly. That, and that's, that's, that's a good job of stating the problem. I mean, it's basically a very worldly understanding and a fleshly understanding of the gospel that leads him to this, right? He's thinking in, ter- in human terms. He's not informed by a biblical mindset, which tells us when we really understand it, God's love is a holy love. It, and it would be unloving for him to leave us in our sin. It's unthinkable that God would do that. It's unthinkable that God would not judge wickedness. It's loving for him to do that. Yes. The Ethiopian eunuch. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's reading Isaiah 53. That's right. He's reading about the amazing love of God that would send a servant to suffer for us. In, in the Old Testament. Well, so Marcion, you know, the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. He borrows from the Gnostic worldview of dualism. This is where I'm saying he's influenced by his culture. Remember, we talked about how the Gnostic ideas really came out of Platonism. Remember Plato? Basically, the material world is evil. This is, this is Platonic uh, Greek thought. The material world is evil. Uh, the spirit is good, and so what we need to what salvation is is being liberated from the material world, and that you're essentially good on the inside. All your problems are the fact that you're connected to sinful body, or they wouldn't say sinful, but evil, right? And so Marcion has bought into that idea, and he looks at God, the God of love, who is 
delivering us from this mess. And so uh, he sees that the God of the Old Testament is an evil God, and the God of the New Testament is a good God. The true and highest God is the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament, he borrows, I even use some of the language Gnostics do, the demiurge. Remember, I mentioned it last week, a phrase of a lesser God. It still has, uh, you know, God-like qualities and powers, but he's less. And so this is his, he borrows the Gnostic worldview of dualism, but he differs from Gnosticism in acknowledging, this is that second bullet point, biblical authority. Now, I, I say that with a caveat, of course. He, he, he rejects so much of the Bible, but but he, he's actually appealing for his position from the text. Very different than the Gnostics. The, I mean, the, remember the, the Christian Gnostics that, that would get really into Gnosticism, and they were all about their own experience, their own enlightened moments that they had sort of insights, flashes of insight, dreams. That's where they looked for their authority to you know, tell them how to live, to tell you how to live. And, and Marcionism is not that. It's actually looking to a limited canon, though, a restricted canon, and an edited canon. Marcion's canon, uh, well, okay, first of all, second, B, let's go to B. The message of the Old Testament is not the message of the New Testament. It's not equal to. It's two different books that are radically different. Not only is there any element of discontinuity, they're just totally opposite in Marcion's view. The Old Testament has no value. And so that leads us to see the canon of Scripture, C-A-N-O-N. The canon of Scripture. In the canon of Marcion, this is his whole canon, the Gospel of Luke and ten of Paul's epistles. He rejects 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and he also edits Luke a lot. He takes out the birth narrative of Luke because Jesus, as the Son of God who's delivering us spiritually from this material world that's evil, would not have become a man. So the, the birth narrative is problematic. And what he says is that the gospel writers and the Jewish apostles we're corrupting God's revelation. He says Paul's the only one that got it right. But then he still has to ignore a lot of Paul because Paul's continually appealing to the Old Testament. And if you're a true Marcion, you, Marcionite, you wouldn't want that at all. The Old Testament is completely bogus. It's wrong according to Marcion. So... Marcion's Bible is that. Now, that, the, the whole thing of him putting that canon out there then leads to a lot of discussion among the churches, and part of the issues of dealing with these errors is, no, what is the real canon? And so the church really starts talking about that in, in writing. I'm sure they were. It was, it was practically dealt with all the time. I mean, you had church. You went to church in some town in Asia Minor, or you went to church in some town in northern Africa, or you went to church in some town in what's now Syria. You would have had a canon working canon of some kind. And it would have included all of the books of the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, and it would have included 
different gospels as you had received them, and different Pauline epistles, epistles of Peter. You might have had the Apocalypse, the Revelation. Uh, you know, it would have just depended in God's providence. And that's why I remember during that time, when they didn't have the New Testament canon, God gives the gift of prophecy, supernatural ability to speak the truth during that time when the canon is being formed. It was necessary. But anyway, so Marcion drives the church to look at this issue. It, 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 you know, indirectly, he is a blessing because God makes what's evil a blessing. He's evil. He doesn't mean it for good. He means it for evil in some way in his deceived heart. But God turns it around for good. So the lure of Marcionism, or the appeal, I'd say the appeal, number four, the appeal of Marcionism. How did it catch on so well? It's error. Well, the appeal of Marcionism, one is it gets rid of the law. And getting rid of the law appeals to the flesh. It really doesn't matter how you live. Uh, God's not concerned about that. God's only, God is love. God is love. God is love. He loves you. He loves you. There's a lot of, as you think about this, can you see some Marcionite elements in the church today? It's been throughout history that you see this appeal, you know, that de-emphasize, you know, what, what we understand the gospel is that, yeah, we can't do anything to earn God's favor. We are all sinful and hopeless in and of ourselves. Nothing we can do to make ourselves clean before God. But Jesus Christ has done everything necessary, and he gives us a new heart and a new nature. He said, you must be born again, right? It's not just a change of mind. It's not just accepting, praying a prayer. It certainly it, it, it requires praying to the Lord and calling out to the Lord, but it's not merely praying a prayer. It's a new nature. It's regeneration. And a new nature still in an old man, so there's a battle, there's a war that now really begins in earnest when you become a Christian. But this new nature does want to be holy. That's Paul's whole argument in Romans 6.1 when he says, you know, he's basically responding to critics of his gospel, Jewish critics of his gospel, who would say, uh, you're, you're, you're advocating antinomianism. If you say antinomianism, that you can live however you want to, there is no law, don't worry about it, which is kind of what Marcion is. Marcion is antinomian. But they were saying that about Paul because Paul preached a gospel of justification by faith alone. You were declared righteous forever because of your faith in Christ. And so there were people at the time who were saying, if that's what you're preaching, then people won't want to be holy. Same error of Roman Catholicism today. Same error Luther faced in the 16th century. If you really preach the gospel of justification by faith alone, people won't want to be holy. But Paul's argument in Romans 6, 1 is, you completely misunderstand what salvation is. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer therein? How can we who died to sin continue to live the way we did? No, we have died with Christ, been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. 
The disposition of the heart has been changed in the deepest part of the person. Even though it's a daily war and this flesh is still there continually fighting, there's a new principle of life inside the person who's truly been born again, right? So Marcionism doesn't see that tension of free grace, lavish love, and a desire for holiness and a call to be holy. He doesn't recognize that. So he gets rid of the law, That's and it's in line with the spirit of the age. He is getting a message that resonates with the spirit of the age. I use that phrase, spirit of the age, to refer to the fact that you can, throughout history and different cultures, different places and times, you can find certain... Satan is the deceiver always. He's always the one behind the world system, and the world system, you know, the values, the beliefs, uh, the prevailing wisdom of the world. Um, and so it differs over time. You find places where, you know, things are just like, for instance, today, uh, we I mentioned last time, today people find it harder to believe that Jesus was God. In the first century, they found it harder to believe that we were claiming to worship a Messiah, God, who became a man. It was because the prevailing wisdom of the day was so different then than it is now. It's always anti-God, but it has different flavors. And what I'm saying is Marcionism, like every great heretic, appeals to the spirit of the age. It rings true, not to the gospel or the word, it rings true to the spirit of the age. But that makes it very appealing. And you, you uh, couch it in words of, of, you know, of the spirit, some scripture, and you, but you're twisting the meaning of it. And so Marcionism is... One of the reasons it was so successful, it appealed in line with the spirit of the age. And it appears to be biblical on the surface. I put question marks because he was a very persuasive man, and he would quote some scripture, you know, here and there. He'd talk about Paul, talking about, you know, uh, how the law is of no value in restraining the flesh, or the law is of no value toward our salvation. That Paul will make a statement like that from time to time. Uh, Let me just look at one. And, and, and he'll take that, Galatians. This was his favorite book, by the way, from what people say. Now, Galatians is a wonderful book. It's a shame that we have to know Marcion liked it so much. It makes us, this is, this is treasure here. But it was his favorite book because he liked to ignore a lot of other stuff. Galatians 3.23, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut to the faith, which was later to be revealed Therefore, the laws become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified in Him. It was it was something we, that that God did for a period of time, but it's no longer there. He, I mean, he he wasn't wanting to go in the Old Testament, but he would say this: "There's no value to the law." James, he would have said that at the time it was written, was from God, or that it is outdated, or it was never. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I, I as I'm reading that, I'm, I'm, to get inside his head is a little bit hard because it, like, how can you read Galatians and have his position? Um, I, I don't know exactly how to answer that question. I mean, I, I can't. I, 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 I'm not enough of an expert on Marcionism, and even the experts probably don't really know. They're just giving their best guess, right? Um, he's wanting to just not read the Old Testament. But like here, you have all these references to the Old Testament. I mean, you got, he's talking about the Old Testament all through this passage. He's actually quoting the Old Testament several times here in Galatians 3. 
So I think the the the, the point of whether whether or not he would have he might have said there was value in it, but it's an, it's gone now, and God used it. But that's probably the best he would say. The point is though he would say the law has no value for the Christian. We are now only belonging to Christ. Uh, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, verse 25. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ. Um, so it appears to be biblical because he did a shallow reading of the Old Testament and a shallow reading of the New Testament. He rejected the Old Testament by just reading it in a shallow, surface way, and, he, and people don't know their Bibles, and so it's easy to be, twi- to, to be led astray by someone who can quote a few verses and tell you how bad it is. I mean, the, the God of the Old Testament commanded, you know, like the killing of the Amalekites, therefore we can't be the God of the New Testament who loves all people and desires all men to come to, to, be, to, to be saved. You see, that's the kind of thing he would do. Uh, oversimplify, and then he, wait a minute, wait, there's some other verses that we need to talk. No, no, I'm sorry, you're out of order. We don't accept those verses. And so... Shallow reading the New Testament, though, because he doesn't really read his New Testament well, even though he, and what he would do is when he found a verse he didn't like, he just edit it out and, and say it was corrupted. So he might have done that on, on this issue of, of the law's value even. You know, um, so he was very, he played footloose and fancy free with the text. The response to Marcion is number five. The response to Marcionism or the antidote to Marcionism The unity of the Old and New Testaments. That's the first A there, 4A, the response to Marcionism, the unity of the Old and New Testaments. The Old Testament and the New Testament teach one story. That's really clear. I mean, if you read your Bible, and I, I encourage you, if you haven't read the whole Bible, it is a great discipline to build into your life. And there are many plans that do it. I'm using one myself I've used for a few years that's really helpful. You read three chapters of the Old Testament, sometimes four, and then one chapter, either the New Testament or a Psalm, it just bounces around so that within one year, you read the whole Bible. And what I like about this particular plan I have is it, it, uh, it takes you through kind of in order. You start in Genesis and you work all the way through. Like I just finished Second Kings. I've got two chapters left in Second Kings. I'll finish it. When you read it and you read it and you read it and you just start to see there's so many connections. It's such a beautiful work. And from Genesis to Revelation, there's one message. God has created all things. Man has rebelled against him, and yet God would not leave man in his rebellion. He is mighty to save. And... He's a holy God, and He is a loving God. He's a God of wrath and justice. He's a God of incredible mercy and loving kindness. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and justice and a God of love and mercy. The God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy and a God of wrath and justice. Things like this. Jesus talks about hell more than He talks about heaven. That's the God of the New Testament talking about, I'm, I'm, to use Marcion's lingo, right? Talking about hell. Look at Revelation. Look at the passages that speak of his wrath. The author of Hebrews, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
And so it's one unified book. The 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament are one book. One beautiful, glorious book. And the second point is the analogy of faith. This is a technical phrase which means Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. This was something that um, it, it's always been obvious. In fact, it, it, it's, it's obvious in the ministry of Jesus himself. When Jesus is tempted, do you remember when Satan comes to him with that temptation and says, takes him up and puts him on the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you're the son of God, jump off this temple because it is written, and he quotes Psalm 91, that he will give his angels charge concerning you and they will bear you up in their hands lest you strike your foot upon a stone. Satan quotes scripture to Jesus to tempt him. What does Jesus do? He quotes scripture to respond to him. He said, is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's the analogy of faith. That's saying, yes, the Bible does talk about God will take care of you. He will care, and particularly his anointed one. But everyone who then comes into Christ, those promises are true for you too, spiritually in Christ. But he says, God has more to say on the subject than just that verse. So you have to bring all of the scripture's teaching to bear on an issue. This is what, that, remember I told you the heretics, Mars, or two, his two flaws were he oversimplified and he ignored anything he didn't like. So he, he rejected the analogy of faith. He did not think like Jesus thought, where Jesus quotes the scripture. In fact, every time he's tempted, what does he do? He quotes, it is written. That's how he answers all three temptations. It is written. God the Son, living as true man, completely uh, laying aside his own... I mean, he, he still is intrinsically God, upholding all things, but he's not using his divine power to overcome temptation. He's living as true man, dependent upon the Father, even doing his miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because he, So he's living as true man, and his heartbeat is what does the scripture say? That's really the thing that Marcionism teaches us, is what really matters is what does the scripture say? And it is so foolish to try to reject the Old Testament when the Old Testament gives all the context for understanding who Jesus is. And in fact, when you read your New Testament, if you read it carefully, I love this, how our modern translations do this one thing. Most of them will change the font when they're quoting an Old Testament passage. And you can see that they're quoting an Old Testament passage. There it is. They're quoting something. And then you look, if, if you have a good Bible that has footnotes, it, you look, at, look in the footnote, it'll tell you exactly what verse that is. They're quoting from Isaiah. They're quoting from Jeremiah, and they'll tell you the verse. And you can go look it up in the Old Testament. I mean, I can't remember. It's like 350. Uh, I, don't, I, haven't che- I meant to check that out again. I, you know, these numbers sometimes... I used to have them like I just would know that. But anyway, get older and you don't remember. But three, something like 350 direct quotations of the Old Testament, and then you add allusions to the Old Testament where they're clearly alluding to some text, but they didn't quote it directly. Uh, maybe it's 350 total quotations and allusions. 
But in 27 books, I mean, page after page, they're always referring to the Old Testament. What are they saying? What we are saying to you is completely consistent with what you've heard in the Old Testament, which gets back to what you said, Mike, earlier about the Bereans. Remember when Paul preached in Berea in Acts 17.11, Luke, the author of, of Acts, comments about the Bereans, and he says, the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, which was high praise because those in Thessalonica were very noble-minded. Read First Thessalonians. There's no critique of them, only encouragement. You're doing great. Just keep it up. That's the message. But the people in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what the Apostle Paul was saying was true. Here they have an apostle who had seen the risen Christ, claims to speak with authority, and he, he, he is speaking with authority. And we read, in, like in 1 Thessalonians, he mentions, when I, when I preached, you didn't receive my preaching as the words of men, but as it truly is the Word of God, because the apostle speaks the Word of God. So the Bereans know the apostle speaks the word of God, but even that, even though he speaks the word of God, what must we know? It must be consistent with all that's come before. Because they knew what Deuteronomy 13 and 18. Read those passages and you'll see Moses at the end of his life is telling them how to test future prophets. In Deuteronomy 13, first seven or eight verses, and Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 20. And how do you test those prophets? One of the ways you test them is they will what they say will be consistent with what you've already heard. So Marcionism was used by the Lord to help us see the importance of the analogy of faith. And so that the, the other thing, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. I mean, it, the, the message of the Old Testament is the message of the New Testament. It's, it's united. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The Gospels in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the law is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Law and Gospel all over the Scriptures, because law always leads you to Christ, to the Gospel. You would have no ability to understand your need of Christ without for the law. And so the New Testament has th- commands, every in New Testament imperative, for thus th- those of us who have been born again now have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We, the New Testament imperatives, like husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, that's a command, that's, a, that's law. You are required to love your wife as Christ loved the church. What does that do? What does the law do? We read earlier from Galatians, the law is a tutor that leads you to Christ. The law makes you run to Jesus. I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ loved the church? Impossible. I need all of the power and grace of Jesus that comes through union with him. Lord Jesus, I need you to live your life in me. I need you to give me your heart. You see, that's, so that's the function. Law and gospel work that way. It's, it, it's a really important subject that we need to study more and more and more as Christians, how those things relate. But essentially, that's it. The law shows you your need, exposes the vast distance between you and me and God's standard, and shows us the only way to meet God's standard is through the work of Christ. That's the gospel. And Jesus does save to the uttermost those who come to him, and he loves us with perfect love. So that's essentially the, the whole idea of Marcionism and, um, and how, you know, like I said, it, it amazing uh, success of that false doctrine, but the church over time 
Like I said, all these different godly men, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and all these others writing against it, pastors preaching the word, pulling out the Old Testament scriptures and showing people, look at this, look at these verses in Deuteronomy. David? Well, I'm speaking in terms of, I'm I'm using law in a slightly different way. I mean, I, I think it's correct what I'm saying that to, to anything that tells you what the standard is, this isn't a standard of salvation. This is the standard of your life, though, as a Christian man. Anything that tells you standard is telling this is what this is what holiness looks like. Okay, and anytime that that you see the standard, the Christian's response is, "I can't meet." Should be, "I can't meet it in my own strength. I can't do it, and therefore I need gospel." So it drives me to the gospel. So I continually preach the gospel to myself because I cannot fulfill what God calls me to. And what that's telling you is you're saved. Now, you're saved because when you realize that you know, God requires perfect obedience, a perfect love of God, right? Loving him, never worshiping an idol, worshiping him completely. Uh, he does require a perfection of love. He requires that you love your neighbor perfectly, that you never commit adultery, even in your mind, that you never commit murder, even in your mind or with your mouth, that you never steal, that you never lie. And when we put ourselves up against that, what do we see? We are filthy sinners. There's no hope for us. What does that make us do? It makes us run to the one who lived the perfect human life, who actually did fulfill the positive commands of the law, Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Jesus did that. He loved his Father as a man every single moment of every single day. He never once put anything in the place of God. He never lusted after another woman. He never said a hurtful word that was mean to demean someone and hurt them. If he spoke a hurtful word, it was a word of love and loving rebuke that was seeking to save their soul. His motivation was always holy. So he met the standard, he alone. So the gospel is the message of how God has met the standard and will give you the power to be what he wants you to be eternally and experientially in your daily life. So what I'm saying is law and gospel are in Old and New Testament because uh, the New Testament, even as Christians now, now that we've been saved, we're called to be holy. Well, how can you be holy? Even though you have been saved, because you still have an old man. You still have weakness of the flesh, right? You need to be delivered from this body of death. How can you do that? Well, you have to keep running to Christ. What makes you run to Christ? What reminds you of your need to run to Christ? Commands like love your wife as Christ loved the church. You know, because you could think as a Christian, I, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good husband. Relatively speaking, I'm, I'm a lot better than these other guys. I mean, you know, you're talking to your wife, I'm, I'm a lot better husband than your brothers are. I mean, I, those are the kind of things you think you probably never, should never say that as a husband. It's just no, no, no good because going to come of that. But you might think it, but that's because you're thinking on a, on a low level anyway. Uh, yeah, comparatively, if I compare myself to others, I may think I'm doing okay. Now, I compare myself even in a perverted way where I make myself look better than I do, right? I, I understand that, but, but we may really think we do measure up pretty well that way. 
But if you put this standard up there that God says, only grace, only grace moment by moment by the power of the Holy Spirit can I do that. And so it makes you abide in Christ. Abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. So that's what I was getting at. But I thank you for asking that question. It helps really clarify that, David. Thank you. Any other questions before we close in prayer? Jay? Back before, uh, right before, see the life of Scripture. Number four. Which one? Oh, C. Uh, the, what's that? The canon of Scripture. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to take me a minute to figure that out again. Okay. Did I get back in context to figure out what that was? Uh, okay. I apologize. Everybody, uh, I'm trying. I, I, I don't know if this is helpful to make blanks and stuff. Anyway, it is helpful. Okay. Some of you say it is. Some of, if you, if you don't have to use them if you don't want to. So free to, to decide on that. Okay. Um, well, you know, if you think about this, though, think, I'm oh, sorry, Mike, go ahead. Reference people Spoke against Marcionism? Uh, it would be good. You can go online and look up a lot of it. There's like searching against Marcionism. Tom, do you have an answer to that question? Where he's talked a lot about the different people writing against Marcionism. A Paul Washer sermon, but he, that he may mention Marcionism, probably. But he definitely talks about the God is love error. And you think about that, it's really, I said, uh, you know, people wanting to get rid of the Old Testament. Even Christians who say, you know, you might hear Christians say, well, I really love the God of the New Testament, like he's different than the God of the Old Testament. That's Marcionite. doesn't mean that they're necessarily a heretic that they're going to hell, but it means that they're not thinking biblically there. And their, think, and their thinking is unhealthy. That the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same. Laura? Say that again. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Andy Stanley very well-known, another good communicator, good organizer. And, yeah, very concerning what he's doing, uh, but rejecting the Old Testament. And, uh, and you see when that happens, they start rejecting a whole lot of other doctrines. I mean, he's become very open to all kinds of ungodliness, from what I've heard. Kristen? What I didn't have to go into the last day is listing, like, the definition of love in order to, you know, apply that to God. So, yeah... But then they define what that means in their own Yeah. That's a great point. And that's really the key thing is we need to think with the mind of Scripture. Love is defined as God defines it, not as we define it. Um, We need to understand everything we understand coming out of the Scriptures. And so that one of the reasons you read the Word is to, to, to understand the mind of God and to love God more, and to think his thoughts after him. And as we do that, this is the beauty of reading the whole of Scripture, too. We wrestle with some of the hard passages, but you stay in there with it. You, you, you humbly ask the Lord about it. He invites that kind of dialogue. Read the Psalms. Has people asking him, why, Lord, how long? What, you know, 
What are you doing? God wants that kind of dialogue, but he wants it from reverent people who know that they need to be taught by him. I mean, we're men. He's God. And so, uh, but the mind of God and understanding what does love mean? Well, God defines love. What is justice? God defines justice. We don't. James? Yeah. Exactly, because, I mean, if you really love somebody, you want their best. And if someone's living in that kind of wickedness, it's only misery and in this life, and it is eternal separation from God forever in the next. How can you love someone and not tell them that? That's right, because they, they can be delivered from both. Okay, we're going to... We're out of time, actually. Jay, I'll let you... That's what I was Yeah. Yeah. It's like going to a doctor and you think your doctor's great because he always gives you good news. And so he, if, if he's supposed to tell you about your cancer, that you need treatment, you don't want the good news. It's not, not loving for a doctor to say, oh, you're fine. Go home. Here's some, you're going to need some pain meds because I think you're going to have a lot of pain, but don't worry about it. Just be happy and take your pain meds. That's anything but love. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the great love that you have made known to us. Lord, you are truly, you you say you are love, and and love is that which uh, truly wants the best, the highest good for the object that it loves. And Lord, you have wanted the highest good for all humanity, and you've made that possible through Jesus Christ. Even though we hated you, uh, you have loved us. And now, Lord, we rejoice that we love you because you first loved us. Help us to be uh, enraptured in your love. Help us to be people of the book from Genesis to Revelation. Help us to be people who are able to, by our winsome lives, uh, frame the message of the gospel and make it clear to those around us. And may they see that we truly do love them in the same way that you love them. Uh, we want their true best. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.